your mind can be your biggest enemy. And you're always contemplating the worst that can happen, which is good, but it can also have a detrimental effect on you as well. And as long as you can control that and look at fear from a positive aspect, you'll be okay. Once you step into that ring, instead of freaking out and wanting to run, let me use this fear to my advantage. So what is fear going to do? It's going to sharpen all my senses. And so you use that to help guide you through that situation. podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. The internet can make people look very one-dimensional, when in reality, they are far from it. In fact, many of us live dual lives. For instance, I love to listen to death metal and also make friendly, colorful illustrations. Our guest today is no different. He is a graphic designer and also a three-time world champion in Muay Thai, a competitive martial art and combat sport. Like I said, dualities. We'll hear about his tumultuous life journey as a Serbian born in Bosnia, where civil war forced his family to flee the country and ultimately immigrate to the United States, which is where he fell in love with graphic design and developed a secret fighting career. Now, you may think fighting and design don't have much in common, and you're probably right. But one important concept they do share is mindset. So how do you prepare when your life or serious injury is on the line? What kind of training do you need? And how can you develop the mental fortitude it takes to survive? Not to over-dramatize creative work, but putting yourself out there and taking on jobs can be scary. Maybe not get punched in the liver scary, but emotionally just as painful. In this episode, our guest will share his mindset for how to use fear as a tool to help guide you through a scary situation. Please enjoy our fascinating conversation with Ognjen Topic. So what I've been able to gather from you is you've had this tumultuous life, fleeing a war, relocating to America, falling in love with graphic design, but falling in love with something else too, which I want to spend a good portion of time talking about. So you're you're like this... Uh, very strange combination of things, very interesting combination of things in that there's this artist creative person and then there's this athlete who wants to express himself via martial arts, via Muay Thai. And I find that the two can coexist in a person. Usually you don't find people like that. You find people who are very creative who, who are very like professional athlete driven. And so what what makes you you? Like why are you this really interesting split of athlete, uh, martial artist, and artist? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer because um, I think, I think, like you said, both are a way of uh, expressing yourself. Um, and as far as expression goes, I always wanted to find something that's going to challenge me uh, the most. And, you know, when you find something that you, that you truly love or something that you're passionate about, then you strive to be the best that you can be within that field. And when I first found graphic design that was my main focus i wanted to be the best that i can be at least in my class and then outside of my class as well uh once i left college and during that time i was doing uh 
Muay Thai as well. I just started Muay Thai and that was also something that I wanted to, you know, be the best that I can be at. But you also have to realize that you can only be great at one thing at a time. And so I had to make a choice on, you know, which one of those two things I, I was going to pursue. Um, and that was Muay Thai. So um, after I finished college or right before I finished college, I had a uh, I had a graphic design job that was great. It was very uh, uh, it was paying me well, but I had to make that choice. And it was one of the most difficult choices that I had to make. But I was used to making those difficult decisions. And so I knew it was it was the right step forward to, uh, you know, pursue Muay Thai full time. OK, so many things to unpack. And I, I got carried away here. I'm, I usually ask my guests uh, this very question, which is for those of people who don't know you, can you introduce yourself and tell people a little bit of your background? Yeah, my name is Ognjen Topic. I was born in Bosnia. I'm a Serbian born in Bosnia. And uh, we had a civil war uh, in beginning in the 1990s. And so uh, when the country split up, I had to, we had to flee with my family. It was me, my sister, my mother, and my father. And we went to live in uh, Serbia. And from there, my father was actually working in America um, with his brother, construction. And he was playing the immigration lottery, and he ended up winning uh, the lottery, and we ended up coming to America. And from there, I, uh, you know, I was I was always into art. I was always drawing and stuff like that back home. Uh, so I knew I wanted to pursue art. Uh, but then sometime in like sixth or seventh grade, I just started watching a lot of boxing. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a boxer. But my parents, that was like no go for them because, you know, to them, their mentality was we brought you here from from a war-torn country to make something of yourself, to be a doctor, to do this, to do that, lawyer. And now you're going to literally fight for money. And that's, that's, that's what they considered fighting. Uh, even though my father was a fan of fighting as well, just watching it, to him, fighting was... Uh, like the the last means, the last resort. You know, you tried to you tried to like go to school. You tried to do a regular job. You failed at everything. Now you literally have no other choice but to fight for money. And so that's how we viewed fighting. So I said, okay, I I won't do boxing. Just let me do like Taekwondo or karate or something because there's no punching to the face. And so they let me do that. But of course, I was gonna pursue fighting at at some point. So I did Taekwondo for four years and I got my black belt. But throughout that whole time, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't as extreme as regular fighting. And so I saw Muay Thai for the first time on ESPN and right away I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I looked online and uh, found the school. And I've, I've been with that school since I was 18 uh, back in New Jersey. And um, throughout that time, my parents didn't know that I was um, fighting. I was, you know, I had like a whole amateur career as a fighter. They, they had no, no idea until one day one of my fights show, showed up on YouTube and uh, my cousin from England saw it and he called my dad, told my dad that he saw me fighting. Uh, my father flipped out on me and at that time I was still living at my parents' house. And so we didn't speak for four months. So you can imagine how awkward it was at that time. You know, we were, we would walk past each other in the house, not say a word, like neither one of us existed. And so that was a difficult time. But again, this was something that I truly loved. And there was no way that I was going to let anybody um, stop me from doing it. So, you know, things kind of like came down after that. 
because, you know, I have an ego. My father has an ego. I'm not going to talk to him. He's not going to talk to me. So then we ended up kind of just like, like started talking again after those four months. And um, he never questioned me about the fighting again, but obviously he knew that I was still fighting. You know, they weren't, they're not stupid. And then uh, finally, when I turned professional, um, it was maybe after my first or second professional fight. It was on our Christmas, on, on the January 7th, which is Christian Orthodox Christmas. I sat both of them down and I told them that, I, gave them, I basically gave them an ultimatum and I told them that they're either going to choose to support me or this is the last day that they're going to see me. And I was 100% ready to leave the house uh, at that moment. And I knew my, my mother was going to, uh, you know, crumble and succumb and say, okay, I'll support you. But my father, on the other hand, I, I really thought that it can go both ways. And I thought that it was going to, that he was actually going to say, okay, pack your bags up and get out. We're done. Uh, but, um, you know, thankfully he said, okay, I'll support you. And that was it after that. Was your choosing of the ultimatum on Christmas strategic on your part? Um, I don't know why why I did that. I, I really can't remember. All is is being upstairs in my room and I'm just like pacing back and forth. And I'm like, I, I have to do this. This is the day because I was sick of lying to them, you know, and it wasn't like a fluke. It wasn't just something that I'm just going to do like a couple more times and then quit. This this was going to be my profession. And so I knew I was serious about it, you know. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think it was just, I don't know, something significant about it that I chose Christmas. Yeah. Okay. You, you've laid out a bunch of things in your origin story. I want to revisit before we go to the present and the future. So let's go first back to the past. You guys flee uh, Bosnia. How old were you? I was, uh, I was five when we fleed Bosnia. Okay. So you have some memory of Bosnia then. And how did this impact you emotionally as a young child? Did you understand? Could you comprehend what was happening? I mean, I was I was such a wild kid. Uh, my uncle was telling me, like, we would see tanks on, on the TV and I would be like, yeah, there's going to be war. You know, I was one of those kids. I was just like all about all about like fighting and I was full of energy, you know, and I was just that type of kid. So for me, it was like whatever. But one of the most important lessons that I learned at that time from my father is just how he followed his uh, intuition and how he just had instinct. And um, what happened was, uh, you know, the whole war was based basically on, on religion. It was for no reason. And so tensions were, were rising and um, there was a, uh, a Christian Orthodox wedding and a Muslim man came by and he shot the bride. And that was it. That was like, uh, it was like the calling for, for the war. And right then and there, my father said, we have to leave and we have to leave tonight. And, you know, he told my brother that. And my brother said, ah, it's okay. We'll leave. We'll leave tomorrow morning. He said, no, we leave tonight. So we literally packed everything that we could at that time. And we left on the last bus that was available. And right after that, sanctions uh, came up, you know, there was all roadblocks and stuff like that. And so we were really uh, fortunate at that time. Yeah. Wow. He has good instincts and he's very decisive and clear. Yeah. So I can see where you guys would butt heads later. Right. Okay. Then you guys relocate to Serbia. And then how long did you live there? Uh, we stayed in Serbia for three years. Okay. Um, oh, you know, I was still young, so it didn't impact me that much emotionally. Um, because, uh, 
you know, I was pretty much still young and I was starting all over. Okay. And then at this time, is it that your dad's like in America working while you guys with your mom and your brother are at home in Serbia? Yeah, he would go back and forth from being in America and then coming back to uh, Serbia. But he would stay in America for quite a while, probably like about, I think it was like a year, the longest that he stayed. I see. And how was that like for you, your mom? And you said you have one brother or do you have other siblings? Uh, it's it's uh, actually a sister. Oh, sister. Okay. Yeah, just her. Okay. So you have a sister. And so how was it for the three of you without your dad? Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. I mean, technically we were considered um, uh, refugees. But we never like to use the term refugees because it's just, you know, how our, how our father taught us. He didn't want to want anybody feeling bad for us. And so we were refugees for a very, very short amount of time. Um, my father didn't want to lean on anybody. He wanted to do everything himself. And so uh, when we first got to Serbia, we stayed a couple of nights in my cousin's house. And then we moved out into uh, the sticks, how they call it, you know, um, uh, where it was just like, you know, basically farmland. I mean, uh, the only, the only, I was in second grade at the time and there was only one other student in the second grade. So that tells you wow. how big the town was. And so we, we stayed at, um, at a lady's house and it was in, in her basement and we didn't have like a shower or anything like that. We would have to boil the water and then we would all bathe basically in the living room. Um, we didn't have a bathroom. My father built a bathroom on the outside uh, when it would, it was winter. I mean, the whole like inside of the door would freeze over and we would have to be like sleeping in, in full, uh, jackets and stuff like that. And I know to some people this may seem sad, but, uh, trust me when I tell you that there was many different families that were affected in much worse ways. I mean, people, people were, uh, were dying. One of my, um, further uh uncles he got shot by a sniper he lived but there was much much uh worse worse things and um and so after that he slowly started building a house and he pretty much built the whole damn house by himself him and him and my mom you know me and my sister we helped as much as we can and uh and that was it this is him building a house in in serbia like in the in the farmland is that yeah wow. yes and the before that, he's a professional soccer player. So the only way he was making money was through soccer. And um, and what does he know about building a house? Absolutely nothing. But that's another lesson that I learned about pressure. And when your back is up against that wall and you have nowhere to go besides forward, you'll figure it out. And so that was that was uh, that was a great lesson that I learned. Okay, so there's a lot of things here that I'm seeing parallels between you and your father. But we'll get into that later. Okay, so he figures out how to build a house. He has a skill now, and he can then use that skill. So is this when he starts to like look for jobs in America? Um, well, my his his other brother was living in America already, and he was well established. He's been living there for maybe like ten years already, and so he had a construction company. So my father would just come over and work, um, save as much money because you know a dollar at that time would go. A long way and actually um in 90 91 92 that's when inflation was the highest in uh former yugoslavia um and you know like you can buy a loaf of bread for like a billion dinars <laughs> which is insane literally um, a billion yeah it was wow crazy yeah. yeah and that was that was the highest at the time in the world 
and it's still one of the highest within like top five or top ten. Uh, so he would come to America. He would send over money, um, and then when he would come back, he would also obviously bring money. Yeah. So that money would go a long way then because of the inflation that was happening locally, right? So yeah, that was enough for you guys to get by. Right. Yeah. Because the uh, the packages that we would get, we would get a package uh, once a month as refugees, but it wasn't good. Right. Uh, like. You know, Food would be like stale and stuff, and you weren't able to eat any of the any of the uh, the food. Um, so sometimes my mom was telling me that we would go uh, apple picking. We would just sneak in and steal some apples. <laughs> you have to out. be resourceful. You just have to do. You know, your mom's got right. two mouths to feed. Okay. And when your dad left, w- was there any kind of emotional moment between your mom and did he sit down with you and your sister and say, "Hey, Papa's got to go do something"? and you guys need to take care of each other. And was there any kind of goodbye speech like that? No, we're just not uh, <laughs> emotional in that way. Even though we we have those emotions, uh, my father has never said "I love you" to me or to my mom or to my sister. I've never said "I love you" to my father, but we all love each other and we all care for each other. Um, so it wasn't something that we we sat down and uh, discussed. He just had to do what he had to do. He had to provide. And uh, he was going to figure that out uh, by any means necessary. Were, were you feeling, I mean, how were you f- processing all this from an emotional point of view? To, for me, everything was okay. I was, I was still a kid, you know. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it, was, it wasn't bad for me. I, I understood what my parents were going through. And, you know, I, I understood they were doing, even at that age, I understood that they were doing everything that they can uh, for me and my sister. So... You know, we, we just did the best that we, we can all together. Okay, fantastic. So you guys come to America when he's able to um, and get a green card or something. Is that a green card he was able to get when you said a lottery? No, he didn't have a, yeah, he didn't, he didn't have a green card. It was it was immigration lottery. So with that, you automatically get a, a green card or not a green card, but citizenship. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, he did hit the lottery. Right. Holy cow. So he, he, then you guys are now in America. Where are you living? Uh, we moved to Hilden in New Jersey first. Okay. Um, and that's because my my uncle was uh, was there already in New Jersey, so we just basically followed. Hope I hope. I mean, I was. I always think back, and I was like, man, why don't we just go to California or or uh, Florida or something somewhere somewhere warm, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the same uncle that owns the construction company. Yes. Okay. I, I know this because my, my uncle who worked at the embassy was a big part of how we came to America. And so we all as an extended family are very grateful for him and his position because otherwise we'd probably be uh, in much worse off place than we are today. And I'm curious uh, because your, your uncle like brought his brother into the country to work for him. Is there a relationship? Do you guys have uh, affection or, or appreciation for this uncle who's kind of like the reason why you're here? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, he. I mean, he helped my father out. He had him uh, working for him, and he was paying him well. So, yeah, of course. Wonderful. Okay, um, you you talked about getting into graphic design. I think as as early as high school, which is really early, because for me, it was like mm, I need to like I listened to my parents more than you did, I suppose. When when he said like go do something legitimate with your life, so I repress all those design instincts, the creative parts of me. What is it about you that you're like, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. Well, this is, uh, I think my, my parents were actually supportive of, uh, of the art stuff. 
And uh, even though, you know, it's extremely difficult to find the job as, as an artist, but they were supportive. And I remember when I was living in, um, we moved into uh, to a different town and uh, I just didn't like the scene of the kids. Like, you know, everybody was doing like uh, drugs and, and drinking and stuff. And I just did not see any future. So I said to myself, I got to go somewhere where it's going to prepare me for, you know, for the future better. So I found a, uh, a technical school, which is where one of my other cousins uh, went to. And so I went to that technical school and they had uh, a bunch of different classes that you can take, which one of them was graphic design and then they had all, all other curriculum. So it was basically like, like a small little college. So I loved it. For me, it was, it was amazing because I got, got to work uh, like two hours or two and a half hours within your uh within that shop class which for me was graphic design and that's when i really started um liking it a lot but i also wanted to be um an oil painter i i really liked uh drawing and stuff like that and again that was that was a uh you know that was um something that i had to question myself after uh i had uh after i graduated high school i was thinking to myself when i go on to college uh, you know, I want to be an oil painter. This is like truly what I like doing, but how am I supposed to make money off that? It's not saying that I can't, but it's a very small percentage of artists, oil painters that can actually make like a good living and sell their, their paintings. So I asked myself, how badly do I want to work for it to be one of the best, if not the best oil painter in the country or in the world? And the answer was not that hard. I didn't want to work that hard at it. Um, and so that was my that was my answer right there. And so I went on uh, to pursue uh, graphic design, and then I fell in love with logo design, typography when I went to college, and that was it. Wonderful. Okay, so I want to get to the point now. We're moving really close to the future here. Your interest in the martial arts and Muay Thai and fighting, and you're doing it kind of against the will of your parents. Ultimately, uh, your father succumbs to your ultimatum and says, "Okay, fine, I'll support you." And in the meantime, you're just, you're doing this all on your own. Like you're sneaking off, you're taking, you're like taking the bus or the, driving yourself to the gym and getting into fights and nobody even knows about it. They actually let me train because when I first told them that mm-hmm. I found Muay Thai, my father flipped out and he said, absolutely no, you're not doing Muay Thai. This is like, you know, it's too dangerous for you. Right. And I said, I'm not going to fight. Just let me train. So he said, okay, no fighting, just train. But of course I knew I was going to fight. There was no way that I was going to go train and, and not test out my skills so um after about two years of training that's when i took my first fight on and then i completely hid that the only person that knew was my sister and so sometimes when i would have a fight the fights were mainly all in uh, new york city and so after a fight if i had like a black or blue mark on my face i would go to my friend's house sleep over and then the next day the fights were usually on a friday the next day i would have training saturdays and they knew that so then I would come back from training and I'd say, oh, it just happened during training. It's nothing. <laughs> you have this really well worked out because I was like, how do you hide the bruises? Because you get messed up in Muay Thai, right? Right. It's a, a lot of wear and tear on your body. Yeah. Very clever. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you're you're doing these amateur fights. You're, you've got a whole narrative and a story. So for a while, your parents are uh, cool with it. And eventually, I think your cousin sent sent it to your parents or said, hey, man. Uh, your your son's fighting and then your dad's like shocked. Okay. You guys get through all this stuff. Two headstrong people. Yeah. I see that. Two athletes. I see that. 
two people who are self-determined, who are very decisive and clear about what they want. <laughs> I see that. So it's almost like you guys are mirror of the same person. And so it's like, there's no budging here. Yeah. But ultimately it seemed like it worked out for you. Yeah. I, th- I think we are uh, pretty similar as, uh, as people. Yeah. So what, what takes you to Thailand? Like why? I, I think I know why, but what takes you to Thailand? Well, this is where uh, Muay Thai started. And so once I became uh, number one in America, there was no way for me to uh, get better or climb through the ranks. So I had to come to Thailand to start testing myself against, you know, the best in the world. And these guys truly are one of the best in the world. And um, and that was it. The first time I came was 2008. I stayed for a month, went back. And then 2010, I came back again for a month because I had to work the graphic design job. And then finally, in 2013, I went back again. And then that was it. I, I had to just uh, make that decision. And again, like I said, it was very difficult because uh, the job was good. Uh, and there's absolutely no money in this sport. I mean, it's you know, you're, you you don't get paid like you get paid in boxing millions of dollars or even UFC tens of thousands of dollars. It's very, very little. And so um, I spoke to my bosses. My bosses were like extremely supportive of me. They were like friends to me. You know, we would go out and hang out together and stuff like that. And so I told them that this is what I have to uh, pursue. And they said, yeah, we understand and um, go do your thing. And that's it. Wait. Who are your bosses? What boss? What job are you talking about? Uh, this is uh, Pixel Graphics, located okay. right outside of uh, New York. I see. Oh, this is what you were doing with your graphic design uh, studies. Yeah. I see. In uh, 2010, until about end of 2013, beginning of 2014, I worked. I worked for them. I got it. So you're saying I, I have to leave, and they're like, "Cool, we support you." Yeah. You go to Thailand, and you said Muay Thai doesn't pay anything. Like the prize fight is not a lot. Uh, you have to really figure out how to make money on the side. So, you know, I, I supplemented it with uh, with my personal training, uh, you know, the design that I do on the side and then the seminars that I do around the world and country. I see. So you can make money as a teacher and helping other people. Yeah. And then now I also have uh, sponsorships that uh, that pay me. So you just have to I, you have to build value, you know, and. And the only way was to be as best as you can or the best. So in, in terms of like people who may not understand the differences between the different martial arts, what is what is the unique thing about Muay Thai? Um, Muay Thai is similar to kickboxing. So it's a stand-up art where you use your legs for kicks, uh, you punch, and then also you can uh, elbow and then knee as well. Mm-hmm. Can you clinch and, and strike? Yeah. Yeah, you can also clinch and strike and uh, knee from the from the clinch, elbow from the clinch. So yeah, it's it's a very uh, brutal sport. It is, and and you can also throw people on the ground, but you can't strike them once they're on the ground, right? Yeah, exactly. If they're falling down and they haven't touched the canvas, then you can get get uh, get away with like an extra little before they hit the ground. <laughs> well, once- that's speed there. You're like you knock them down, and on their way down, you got to hit them one more time before they hit the canvas. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I understand. I'm, I'm just looking at the uh, your your history here. So you're a three time Muay Thai world champion. You're an international champion. You're ranked number one in the WBC and the WKA. What weight division do you fight in? Uh, lightweight. So that's like from 130 to 135. Okay. So you're very lean. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm uh, 
I'm about 147, but you have to, you know, cut weight and right. make the uh, for the fight. Okay, so you walk around weight weight is 147, and you cut to to make your weight. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So, you are you still actively competing and and defending your belt? Is that the idea? Yeah, I'm still actively c- competing right now in Thailand. We're still on lockdown. We've yeah. been on lockdown for like the past two months, two and a half months. So it's it's killing me because. I'm not young anymore. I'm 35. So I only have a small window of opportunity to, uh, you know, get to get to the ultimate goal, which is be a champion here in, in Thailand. Okay. And how far away are you from getting like the title fight? I would say a year and a half, two years. Okay. So we, we got we to gotta get over the pandemic pretty soon here, right? Because time's not on your side. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the of being an athlete. Your mind is going like this. You're getting smarter, but your body's going like this. <laughs> the training is the just training. brutal. That's the most difficult part, yeah. yeah. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Ognian. Welcome back to our conversation with Ognian Topic. There's a couple of different ideas I, I want to ask you about. The first is, uh, I, th- I think, this idea of fear. Like, are we supposed to be afraid? Like people say, no fear. Uh, I think you have a perspective on this. I'd love for you to share it. Yeah, fear is, it's, I mean, it's readily available. Anything you do in life. And yeah, of course, we should should be afraid because that's what saves our lives. I mean, if you're walking across the street, uh, you, you look left and you look right out of fear so you don't get killed. Um, so every time I step foot in the, into the uh, ring, I have fear. And, you know, just like if the young designers out there are listening, same thing with, uh, with, uh, with jobs. Let's say, let's say you get a big opportunity from a company that approaches you, right? And maybe um, you don't feel confident enough to take on a, a big job. Take it anyway. Just, you know, all you have to do is be honest with them and t- let them know. Like, let's say if, they, if they're, uh, let's say they're a Fortune 500 company and you have like three years of experience, you're like, oh my God, how am I supposed to do this? I mean... I don't have enough skill to take care of their their needs. Just got to be honest with them. Let them know. You have three years of experience. I charge $500. If that doesn't make sense for you, you know, maybe you're used to hearing $100,000. If that doesn't make sense for you, then we can part ways. If it does, then we can work together. And that's it. I mean, either way, I would still take all those opportunities uh, because what I was talking about earlier, as far as the pressure goes, you know, when... When let's say you have that big client, Fortune 500 company, and you're like a small team of one, and uh, and your back is up against that wall, you'll figure a way out as long as you have that experience behind you. Yeah. So take take me through this because I'm I, I I don't I can't process like what it's like to step into a ring when you know the other person's job is to hurt you. Yeah. And you say you feel fear. What does that feel like inside your mind and your body? Well, as they say, your mind is your can be your biggest enemy. It can be your big, your best friend, but it can also be your worst enemy. And you're always, you're always contemplating the worst that can happen, which is, which is good, but it can also have a detrimental effect on you as well. Uh, and as long as you can control that and, uh, and look at fear from a positive aspect, then you'll be okay. And again, you can't fake it. You know, you still have to put the work in and train hard every day. Um, so once you step into that ring, then you know, okay, instead of, instead of freaking out and, you know, like wanting to run instead of fight, um, 
let me use this fear to my advantage. So what is fear going to do? It's going to sharpen all my senses. I'm going to be extremely mm -hmm. alert. And so you use that to help you help guide you through that uh, through that situation. And then once you get through that situation, uh, if let's say you you overcome uh, those negative aspects and let's say you win the fight or you do well in the fight, well now your confidence level just skyrocketed up. So imagine how much better you're going to be the next fight. If let's say you fail and you lose, then two things can happen. You can learn. Obviously, you're going to learn something about yourself. So one. You're going to learn that, okay, I made these mistakes. Let me go back. Let me fix these mistakes and then be better um, into the next fight. And again, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be better again, but you can try again. The other thing is you find out that maybe this isn't for me. Okay, this isn't for me. I, uh, I gave it a shot. It's not what I want to do. Let me go on to something else or let me go within that field, but do something that might be for me. In as a, in terms of a fighter, when you step into the ring, or when you say you imagine what the worst can happen, what is the worst thing that can happen for you in the ring? Like in your mind, like what's the worst? Well, you can die. That's okay. that's the absolute. Um, and outside of that, uh, you can uh, break your leg. You can uh, break your hand. I mean, I've broken my both of my hands. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's the other the other worst worst thing is something to do with your eyes. I mean, if you're if you break your eye socket or something and your eyes like hanging out um, and you mess up your vision, then, I mean, for me, that would be, that would be the end. Yeah. Okay. So parents <laughs> who have children uh, in Muay Thai, it's like, these are their real concerns. I mean, you're talking about death and, and in ways that your body can break that might not be 100% restored after the fact, right? Right. Like Michael Bisping, he had a punch in his eye that dislocated his eyeball. So he has like a bad eye now. Correct. Yeah. So there's the physical part. But what about the emotional fears? Like, are there things where you think, oh my God, I don't want to be embarrassed by this guy. It's like, I should beat him, but uh, I, I was totally schooled. Is there that emotional fear? No, I never really had that because I always gave 100% of myself uh, in every fight. So when I would go fight and I would give 100% of myself, no matter what the outcome was, there was nothing that I regretted because of that. And so I was always okay. So even if I, you know, I would give 100% of myself, I lose the fight. All I had to do was come back, fix those small little mistakes, and then go on to the next. So it was always just, uh, just the, uh, the mentality of progressing forward. I would always find the positives. You know, even, even when I would... Even when I would uh, win a fight, I would still go back and find little things that, that need to be fixed, and then I would get better for the for the uh, next fight. So it's basically just no quitting. Mm. So you touched on several different concepts, and I'm going to dive deeper into one of them. But you, you lean into your preparation. Was I prepared or was I not? And you talked about the difficulty of training, especially in heat. And I want to talk about that later. But And then when you, when you get into it, you, you kind of look at it like, I either win or I'm going to learn something. And whether you win or lose, you're playing back the event to find ways of which you can improve. So this is like the signs of someone who is going to do really well in life. Uh, those are the traits I would look for if I'm going to collaborate with somebody. Are they continuously learning? Are they continuously improving? And it sounds like that's exactly right uh, attitude. So the outcome of the fight doesn't matter that much. It's nice to win. It's not as nice to lose. But you're going to learn and progress. And that's how you get better every single day, right? Correct. Okay. I'd like to focus or shift the gear over to the amount of discipline, determination, and focus you have to have. You talk about this and you talk about the work, putting in the work in the gym and why it's so brutal. 
So can you expand on that for me? Yeah. Um, like I was saying before, the confidence is going to come from the, the preparation and the work that you put in. So again, your life is on the line, essentially. Um, it's either that or something very damaging can happen uh, where you get uh, seriously injured. And so you, you give yourself no choice but to put 100% of yourself during the training, you know. And, um, and even, I, you know, I set, I set these like little mental triggers for myself when I'm training. So let's say when I'm hitting those pads and I'm dying, I just want to stop. Then I get, I, I set that trigger. And as soon as I start feeling tired, okay, now I know I, I, can't, I can't push myself more because your body can only handle so much. But let me just continue. Let me sustain that level. You know, maybe I don't need to go higher, but let me just sustain that level, but continue forward. So when that happens in the ring, it's like an automatic trigger that I have. And, you know, you don't want to quit because even in the ring, when you get tired and when you get hurt, you know, I've, I don't know if you've ever felt how it feels to uh, get hit in the liver, but that's one of the most difficult shots to uh, overcome. Uh, that's when you lose your, uh, you, you can't really breathe and you need a certain amount of time to recuperate, which is usually about 20 seconds and think about what 20 seconds is in a fight. So, um, just in my last fight, a couple of months ago, I had that happen to me and, uh, I got hit in the liver and the first, my first thought is I want to quit. I just want to hit that red bite and I want to, I want, I want this to be done. But then, um, you know, you, you, uh, you go back to your training and, and, you know, I promised myself a long time ago that uh, I will never let another man put me down from a body shot. It's I'm just never going to allow it because to me, at that point, you're still able to think. The only thing you're feeling is pain. It's just pain. You can't breathe. So as long as you stay calm under, under that pressure and say to yourself, okay, I just need to figure out how to survive for the next 15 to 20 seconds. And there are ways you can do that in, in the fight strategies, um, then I'm going to be okay. I'm going to fully recuperate and I can continue on fighting. Um, and so that's basically the, uh, my mentality for that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like when you're in the gym and you hit that break point where you're like, I'm done, you have to find your second win. You're, I guess that, that fire within you to say, no, I can put in more time. I'm going to keep going. So as you continue to expose yourself to that feeling, that wall, then when you're actually in the ring when it matters and you're fighting for a title or just you have an opponent in front of you, you can dig deeper. But when you get hit metaphorically or literally in the liver, you want to shut down. Like so when yeah. when your client fires you, when a client doesn't pay you for a job and just disappears on you or they said they were going to award something to you and they didn't, that could be the equivalent to that kind of blow. Absolutely. In the ring, you have to find somehow... Uh, tw the 20 seconds so that you can recover but outside the ring what what do you have to do to like find that like if you're a designer or an artist when you have these setbacks what can you tell yourself well if we take the example of of your client not i've never had a client not pay me fully but i've had clients uh not pay me for the amount that i was you know worth and so i i basically chalk it up to a a learning experience and not just the learning experience from, you know, uh, from the client to me relationship, but I would use it as like, you know, okay, this was, this was, a, this was a good learning experience for me for the job. Um, and I got something out of that job because I learned 
every job, every logo design that I do, I learn something uh, new, some way to be efficient, or somehow to like, let's say, let's say for example, put letter forms together in a in a different way. And so I learned something from that. So it's not just complete like throwaway. Even though, yeah, I didn't get paid for what I was worth. I got something out of it. I'm okay. I can use it for my portfolio. Let's go on to the next and try not to get effed over again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess your thinking is very consistent. So everything is a learning opportunity for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't have time to just quit and give up. You know, I only have a small window of opportunity, not just for the for the fighting, but even even for design. I'm on this world for the next what forty to fifty years, I guess, maybe sixty, and that's it. It's it's blink of an eye, and the older I get, the faster time passes me by. Right. I'm always uh, in pursuit of perfection, even though I know it doesn't exist. We don't even know what perfection is, but the fact that there might be a small little chance that we know what perfection is, I continue to pursue it. Wonderful. <laughs> um, there's one more thing here I want to ask you about, which is about criticism. We get this a lot. I think we're afraid of doing something because the, or the fear of someone else saying something bad and it's going to just ruin our day, our week, or our month. What's your perspective on processing criticism? Again, I, for me, I think it goes back down to the, to the confidence and having a high self-esteem. And so for me, criticism, whether whether it's positive or negative, they both have the same amount of value. It doesn't matter to me. So if my, uh, let's say if my coach tells me, oh, that was a great session, you did, gr you did good, you're going to beat the next guy and it's going to be decisive. It doesn't matter what he says. It all, all that matters is what I think. So if he can tell me the most, all the positive things in the world, but if I feel negative about it, I'm going to be the one that loses that fight no matter what. It doesn't matter if you told me the positive. Now, same thing goes with the negative. If somebody tells you, oh, you suck, you, you're not going to amount to anything. Um, again, it's all about what you think of yourself. Maybe as like a learning experience in the gym, maybe you, you, you won those small little battles. Let's say you had a sparring session and you did just a couple of, couple of moves that, that were really good. But maybe overall, you, you lost the fight. But still, you're, you're starting to see a small little improvement, small little increments of, of improvement. And so that person telling you that you suck, you just lost this sparring match, you're going to amount to nothing. It shouldn't matter to you because you know that you're, you're getting better and better by, day by day. And all it is is just time. It's just going to take a long, a long time. I mean, it's... It is what it is. It's going to take at least, you know, what they say, uh, 10,000 hours or 10 years, whatever the case case is. But eventually you're going to get there. And I, I almost want to guarantee to people that uh, that they will succeed as long as they stick by. It and if they're you know passionate about something, don't give up on it. Just keep going forward. Keep going forward. You will get there. It's it's almost like guaranteed. Mm. You, you're saying something that I very much believe in, which is about having the patience. I think so many people think if they don't get what they want within a very short period of time and people's expectations are so unrealistic, they want to be the world champion, fill in the blank. They want to be a huge influencer overnight. They want to have a YouTube channel with every video goes viral and they're not willing to put in the work. They're not going to stay focused on just putting in effort every single day, looking for those small incremental improvements. And then therefore they quit and they change their mind. They move on to something else. And so you've been at this game for some time and you have 
your mind clearly focused. And if all goes well, a year and a half from now, you're going to have a title shot. And hopefully you can realize one of your dreams before your body ages out and, and you can't take the kind of punishment. Right. And you're really focused. That's years and years of practice. Yeah. And think about think about that, uh, that gamble that I have. It's like it's like going to uh, to Vegas and just putting all your chips on black and just hoping that something's going to happen. I mean, none of it none of it is guaranteed. I'm just gonna continue moving forward, and um, and I, obviously I'm gonna get something out of it, no matter what. I'm still gonna I'm I'm still gonna be uh, successful, uh, even though maybe I don't reach that goal. Um, so it's not like it's gonna be a complete failure. So, but again, it's it's a big gamble. Mm -hmm. So for you, whether you realize that goal or not, like once you feel like I've had enough, do you continue on? training and then teaching others is that how you continue to participate in the sport that you love yeah that's that's that would be the uh the goal at the end i would still continue doing my seminars teaching people mm -hmm. um sharing knowledge beautiful um is there anything else that's coming up for you that we can find out about no i'm just waiting to uh to fight again <laughs> that's it man yeah. okay are they rolling out the vaccines there in thailand they are yeah okay and uh they're going to be getting some more, uh, I believe, by the end of this month, July. Yeah. So when when they when the uh, country shuts down and you're under lockdown, how do you stay mentally sharp and focused and physically? Uh, because I, I imagine a person like you who's very used to being active and doing things and being around people. How are you staying sane in this time? Yeah, I mean, like you like you said, you you nailed it. It was it's very difficult, but um, again, you got to figure a way out. And, um, I'll tell you when, uh, when it first happened last year in March, I was here in Thailand and I was supposed to stay, um, for like an extra three months. And, uh, I was here with my girlfriend, my girlfriend came to visit and she also fights too. And so as soon as that happened, we booked our flight back and we just, you know, we continued training in our, in the, uh, in the living room. Um, and then after that, you know, the, the, throughout the whole time, throughout that whole year of last year. I was I was really afraid that my skill level was going to go down because obviously I didn't have the training partners that I normally do the elite level fighters here, and so I was doing whatever I could whatever I can to continue my training uh, with whatever partners I can. Even if I didn't have partner partners, it would just be me training by myself. But a lot of what I did was just mental uh, training, I guess if you want to call it. But I was just thinking about it mentally, what I needed to do as far as small little minute details in fighting such as timing fakes feints things like that uh that are found that at the elite level and so when i came back here to thailand uh my coaches and some of the other fighters told me that they they noticed an improvement and um and i noticed an improvement as well when i was training with them and so you know i i think that that break really gave me a good amount of time to rest and, and help me improve and uh, help my improvement. And actually the same thing happens when I design a logo. If I tell a client that, you know, I'm, it's going to take me about four weeks to do a logo design, I'll put in specifically like about four to five days um, within that time where I'm not thinking about the logo. I step away from it. I walk away and that's it. I'm done. And then I come back with fresh eyes and I see all these little small details that I can fix, that I can alter. And, um, you know, that really does help out a lot. I think uh, resting should be a part of training, not just for physical stuff like Muay Thai, but for the graphic design as well. 
Yeah, I think there's, I don't know the term for it, but there is a scientific term for like when you work on something, you start to lose perspective mm. and you don't understand anymore. Like you just fall in love with this thing and you can't see what someone who walks by and looks at your work and says, oh, you should just move that over there. And you're like, oh my God, why can't I think of, why didn't I think of that? So having rest and a break, a clean break. So when you're doing color correction, they say like you you lose your sense of color within 15 minutes of looking at the image. So then you have to switch to something else and then you you keep switching. So you cycle through that. So it sounds like that time off allowed your body to fully heal. So probably really healthy, but hungry too. Like your desire to get back in the gym and then staying focused and thinking about the things like maybe revisiting some of those those previous fights where you're like, oh, I could do this. I could turn that and that's where I can improve. That seems like it's a thing that's improved your yourself. So anybody who's listening to this, you don't have to be... A, a martial artist. You don't have to be a Muay Thai fighter. You just sit there and think, you know what? With some rest and reflection, always looking for one or two small things that you can improve because I really believe it. The small things that you do have big consequences. Yeah, those are the building blocks. Wonderful. Um, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Um, for the creative stuff, they can look at topiccreative.com and then follow me on social media, all Topic Creative. And then for the fighting, it's topicfight.com and then social media topic fight. Wonderful. Well, it was a real pleasure uh, chatting with you today. Uh, I think this is a first for us. If it's not the first uh, professional athlete, uh, especially in Muay Thai as a martial artist, you're most definitely the first person that's been on the show that has this duality to them where you have this creative side and it, you're practicing an art. And then you have a physical side, you're practicing a martial art. So thank you very much for chatting with me today. You got it, man. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. My name is Ognjan Topic, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.